Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I talk about the second essay of Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morality, an essay that deals primarily with the question of guilt, of bad conscience, but also talks about belief in God, the use of punishment and mercy, and a variety of other related issues. Nietzsche is answering the question, where did these things come from? What is their real nature? And generally, are we as moral as we think we are? Nietzsche concludes that even our most moral attributes are, at root, a desire for and a love of power. Is Nietzsche wrong? Right? Maybe partly wrong and partly right? We'd like to hear what you think. So email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com, that's wondering with an A, or talk to us on Twitter, uh, at Toward Wisdom. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com to find information on, on our on our all-volunteer nonprofit, events, blogs, other podcasts, including the newest podcast in the network called Tangible Truth with the venerable Doug Powell. And of course, consider praying for us and maybe even tossing us some of your extra cash. Now let's get to, to offending everyone with our good friend Nietzsche. Nietzsche has been discussing the origin of morality. He's not been terribly concerned with specific values, though these are noted, values of compassion, equality, and so on. He has been primarily focused on a more fundamental issue, the existence of moral values themselves. It seems obvious why we animals would have admiration and a desire for strength in the broad sense of being able to overcome obstacles and despite pain and difficulty to continue on. But even more so, we do not need to be convinced to, to admire strength or to to enjoy the feeling of overcoming. It seems strange then that we have essentially reversed these values, where we honor and value those who are weak and seek to level down the strong so that they are more like the rest of us. It is as if we are seeking to keep excellence, adaptation, superiority from developing in the human species. Nietzsche has given us account of how this reversal of values took place, an account that encompasses both the psychological and the historical. But we ended last time with a few questions. These various questions are largely answered in the second essay. If you found the first essay of the genealogy difficult, difficult, you'll find the second essay even more so. But hopefully this explanation of what I think are the salient lines of argument will help. Nietzsche's goal in the second essay is primarily to, to explain guilt. Guilt and the priestly morality are closely tied together. Even if we think that Nietzsche may have made some good arguments in the first essay about good and evil arising from the resentment of the weak against the strong. Nevertheless, if guilt is natural to us, then it would seem that the priestly morality may be as well. And since the strong do not really suffer from bad conscience, it would seem then that the strong are the aberration, the unhealthy and the dangerous social mutation. In responding to this possible criticism, Nietzsche starts off with this. To breed an animal with the prerogative to promise is that not precisely the paradoxical task which nature has set herself with regard to humankind? Is it not the real problem of humankind? Why is Nietzsche talking about the evolution of animals that can promise? Consider what a promise is, or to put it another way, consider what it means to keep your word. According to Nietzsche, a number of things must be present for you to have the prerogative to promise. You must have memory. We might consider memory to be a rather useful power that, of course, natural selection would select for, but Nietzsche declares such a view to be somewhat superficial. Consider how forgetfulness can motivate us, while memory can overwhelm us and keep us from acting. 
particularly given that animal life is a daily struggle with pain and difficulty, violence, and terror. A clear and stark memory is like indigestion. Your mind will not allow what has happened, what you have consumed mentally, to go away. Nietzsche describes forgetfulness and memory thus. To shut the doors and windows of consciousness for a while, not to be bothered by the noise and battle with which our underworld of serviceable organs work, with and against each other, a little peace, a little tabula rasa of consciousness to make room for something new, above all for the nobler functions and functionaries, for ruling, predicting, predetermining, our organism runs along oligarchic lines, you see. That, as, as I said, is the benefit of active forgetfulness, like a doorkeeper or guardian of mental order, rest, and etiquette, from which we can immediately see how there could be no happiness, cheerfulness, hope, pride, immediacy without forgetfulness. The person in whom this apparatus of suppression is, is damaged so that it stops working can be compared to a dyspeptic. He cannot cope with anything. Nietzsche is describing something that many of us realize when it comes to dealing with trauma or even the fear of getting back in the saddle after having been hurt or fearful before. Uh, to step onto the battle f or the football field after having broken an arm, to give birth to a second child, to try again after humiliating failure. Only by slipping into that new innocence and sweet freedom of forgetfulness can you really do any great and difficult thing. And so it would seem that memory has some uses. Uh, even though memory has some uses, it should only be a vague thing, without too much strength, enough memory to warn of danger or to draw us toward places of abundance, but not so much that it makes us fearful or weak. A promise is, we might say, the steadiness of a will throughout time. It requires that, in the future, you who made the promise remember the promise clearly and maintain the same will, even if your desires or circumstances have changed. An animal that has the strength of overcoming and the memory necessary to make promises, such a being must be able to shut off or turn on memory at will. To open up one's memory, we might say, for the purpose of promising, and shutting it down again so that we might act. Of course, memory is not the only thing required for promising, for keeping your word. A certain level of predictability is also necessary. That is, you must not only be able to remember what you promised, but you must be able to know what you will and will not do in the future, even giving changing circumstances. How does an animal as complex and as clever as a human become predictable? Not just predictable in the way other animals are, the predictability of instinct, but predictable in terms of thoughts, will, what we value and pursue, as well as all the stupidity and chaos of desires that move within us. How is this achieved? According to Nietzsche, it is a long, painful, hard process of social constraint and moral custom. At the end of this long process, Nietzsche says, there is the ripest fruit, the possibility now of that rarest and most admirable of people, the one he calls the sovereign individual, which he describes thus. Like only to itself, having freed itself from the morality of custom, an autonomous, supra-ethical individual, because autonomous and ethical are mutually exclusive. In short, we find a man with his own independent, enduring will whose prerogative it is promise, and in him a proud consciousness quivering in every muscle of what he has finally achieved and incorporated, an actual awareness of power and freedom, 
a feeling that man in general has reached completion. Nietzsche sees this sovereign individual as one who has moved beyond morality, morality being merely a means of bringing order and shape to humanity. Let us say that humanity was a mass of chaos, and in the midst of this chaos, little civilizations popped up, villages, tribes, cities, and so on. The strong ruled over these, and they gave their little societies customs and constraints that reflected their own character and desires. This order forced the average members of that society into control and conformity, not because they were easily willing, necessarily, but because of the suffering that accompanied the rejection of such conformity, everything from death and torture to exile or simple impoverishment. This order, whether grounded in the vigorous values of the strong or the more moralistic values of the weak, shapes human desires, presses us into people who have some control. But sovereign individuals then begin to arise out of this conformity. Having gained control, they then toss off the training wheels of morality and social constraint. They can now harness and give direction to that chaos within each human that society was meant to constrain. It is perhaps like learning to sail. Most people are simply blown about by the apparent chaos of wind, simply moving where the wind blows. And so we need protection from the wind. We need a trainer who starts by simply telling us what to do so that we go wherever our trainer wishes to go. But in time, in learning the movements, in learning what follows what, in learning how the boat responds to the wind, and even becoming capable of predicting the winds and the tides, we can then move to harness those seemingly chaotic forces to go where we would have them go. Now, philosophers have long stated that human desires are a chaos of forces, like the wind, and most have then provided a set of moral rules that were meant either to beat that chaos into submission through those rules, or meant to remove a set of desires by reducing our identity down to a smaller set of those desires. And while we might read Nietzsche in the first essay, first essay to be rejecting morality altogether, remember that even there he gave the victory of the weak some praise, for that victory made humans deep, capable of evil, but also capable of great things, from feats of bravery and self-sacrifice to the production of wondrous art. At the heart of all these great things is what Nietzsche calls sovereignty, power over oneself, the capacity to, as Nietzsche wrote a few years earlier, give style to one's character, a great and rare art, it is practiced by those who survey all the strengths and weaknesses that their nature has to offer and then fit them into an artistic plan until each one appears as art and reason and even weaknesses delight the eye. Here a great mass of second nature has been added. There a piece of first nature removed, both times through long practice and daily work at it. Here the ugly that could not be removed is concealed. There it is reinterpreted into sublimity. Much that is vague and resisted shaping has been saved and employed for distant views. It is supposed to beckon towards the remote and immense. In the end, when the work is complete, it becomes clear how it was the force of a single taste that rules and shaped everything, great and small. Whether the taste was good or bad means less than one may think. It is enough that it was one taste. Nietzsche says a lot in that paragraph, but we can gather... The, the one central point here, that one's character is meant to be fashioned into something artistic, not to be truncated or tied down through the commands of morality. Morality serves merely as a training period so that we can build the strength and the, and the strategic mindset to be capable of bringing an aesthetic order to our character. 
Now, such a person has the prerogative to promise. Most of us will make a promise from the relatively meaningless let's get together sometime to the grandeur of the promises of political campaigns and to the promise to be faithful to one another in marriage. We make promises in which we claim that our will shall remain steady through time, but we are a chaos of desires and we don't really know ourselves. So we run to moral law, either to force others to keep their promises or to force us to keep ours. But moral law is not quite sufficient. We also need threat of punishment or promise of reward. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Just as with values, Nietzsche claims that the con- that conscience comes from the strong, not from the weak. Nietzsche asks, what will sovereign one call his dominant instinct, assuming that he needs a word for it? No doubt about the answer. The sovereign human being calls it his conscience. As societies developed, people had to be restrained from the chaos of their desires. While the strong early on were perhaps those who simply acted on their desires very often in a barbaric manner, these constraints led them to become truly sovereign. Not merely sovereign over others, which perhaps a few achieved, but far more importantly sovereign over themselves. These societal constraints early on were primarily grounded in pain. For the chaos that is a person must be made to remember. Nietzsche writes of this dark past thus, When man decided he had to make a memory for himself, it never happened without blood, torments, and sacrifices. The most horrifying sacrifices and forfeits, the sacrifice of the firstborn belongs here. The most disgusting mutilations, for example, castration. The cruelest rituals of all religious cults, and all religions are at their most fundamental systems of cruelty. All this has its origin in that particular instinct which discovered that pain was the most powerful aid to mnemonics. Nietzsche goes further, claiming that people came to reason through a long history of the worst kinds of torture. He exclaims, Ah, reason, solemnity, mastering of emotions, this really dismal thing called reflection. All these privileges and splendors man has, what a price had to be paid for them. How much blood and horror lies at the basis of all good things. Now, Nietzsche is by no means painting for us a rosy picture, and yet, even with all this darkness in history, he has only shown us how that healthy conscience of the sovereign person, person arises. Self mastery requires a long history of torture, sure, but what about that nagging feeling of guilt? Where does this come from? Nietzsche claims that humans are perhaps most fundamentally measuring creatures creatures who determine values. We are animals that can, therefore, make trades. And we began, he states, to see everything as able to be paid for one way or another. Such is the case with punishment. Punishment was not originally about retribution against an evil will, for we did not have a concept, Nietzsche says, of human agency. We simply experienced some sort of loss, and we responded by getting a repayment. That is why, he says, in our past, we did not simply punish the guilty party. In fact, we often punish those who are not guilty simply because something has angered us. Think, for example, how you treat others when something unrelated to them makes you angry. You want to hurt everyone. The point that Nietzsche is making here is that punishment is not a matter of trying to correct the will of a guilty party, but rather that it is a way of getting some repayment in pleasure 
for a pain that we suffered. Wait, so Nietzsche is saying that we enjoy causing others pain and that this pleasure is considered a reasonable train for the trade for the pain we suffered? Yes, that's precisely what he is saying. Of course, this may be the most controversial thing we've read in Nietzsche so far. You might draw back and say that you are, in fact, horrified by the suffering of others. But again, maybe you're just not paying close enough attention to how we generally act. We love to see suffering, for example, in our films. In fact, one of our favorite things is the suffering of someone who had previously caused someone else suffering, like revenge stories. We love the gloating of the one who exacted the vengeance. And closer to home, we exult in those moments when we can cause someone the most pain through a well-placed comeback. We love instant karma and even the use of our own sufferings to fill others with regret and sorrow. To cause another person pain is delicious. But why do we like it? How could such love of causing others other humans' pain, how could this develop? Nietzsche puts it simply, it is the pleasure of having the right to exercise power over the powerless without a thought, the enjoyment of violating. Through punishment of the debtor, the creditor takes part in the rights of the masters. At last, he too shares the elevated feeling of being in a position to despise and maltreat someone as inferior. In short, we do not have a problem with suffering in general. According to Nietzsche, during that time when we were more honest with ourselves about the desire to cause suffering, we were, in fact, far happier. He suggests that our modern shame at being human of our natural desires and habits drives our pessimism, that life, even when painful, was far more cheerful when we were unashamed of our human desires. Of course, Nietzsche seems to be overlooking sort of the elephant in the room here. We do not like to experience suffering. That's really the issue, right? But Nietzsche isn't ignoring this. In fact, it is enjoyable for others precisely because we don't enjoy it. Not only that, but he states that while suffering is in fact painful, the real problem with suffering that we have is its senselessness. Thus, even arguments about the existence of God revolve not around suffering itself, but whether there is any meaning to it or use to it, any payoff. Nietzsche states that suffering, in fact, caused many to create a supernatural realm, beings who could, oddly enough, enjoy the suffering. After all, they would be like us, beings who enjoy the feeling of power of causing others to suffer. And thus, we establish meaning in our suffering by the production of divine instigators and spectators. Nietzsche describes it this way, All evil is justified if a god takes pleasure in it. So ran the primitive logic of feeling. And was this logic really restricted to primitive times? The gods viewed as the friends of cruel spectacles? How deeply this primeval concept still penetrates into our European civilization. Maybe we should consult Calvin and Luther on the matter. Here again, Nietzsche attacks both the modern sensibility that we have advanced morally and religiously above our ancestors, and the claim that Christianity is a religion of love. Why the focus on Luther and Calvin? Do they justify suffering, even eternal suffering, through simple assertion that it glorifies or pleases God? 
We already have here a kind of psychological explanation for belief in supernatural beings, built out of a desire to make all suffering meaningful. Of course, in light of our enjoyment of causing others to suffer, how did we arise at ideas of justice and mercy? Remember, our love of causing others to suffer, according to Nietzsche, is a matter of the love of the feeling of power. Power stays central to justice, and even more so to mercy. Nietzsche says that justice begins with a recognition of power between peers. It is, he writes, the goodwill between those who are roughly equal to come to terms with each other, to come to an understanding, again, by a means of a settlement, and in connection with those who are less powerful, to force them to reach a settlement amongst themselves. This agreement is also the ground, he says, of ob- objectivity. What is objectivity, after all, except that which all parties who are roughly equal can agree upon? In smaller groups, when they are in constant danger from competing groups, such as tribes and small villages, their justice is harsh and merciless. If you cause a problem in the society, you are made to experience what it is like to be without that society. You are treated like an enemy, exiled, left naked and and impoverished, and so on all to inscribe within each member of that society a simple memory, a thou shalt not. But as a society grows in power and becomes safer from difficulty, that society expresses its power by ignoring those problems that are caused by those within. Consider how those who want to show how tough they are do so not by beating everyone up necessarily, but by ignoring annoyances and pains. You probably remember the young men, in particular, uh, who wouldn't wear coats when it was cold outside. Or when someone is hit and simply does not move, when someone is jeered at and appears not even to notice, then these are often clearer expressions of power than responding in kind. In fact, it is a sign of weakness to be overcome too easily by pokes and jibes. And here, in that feeling of power, we have the origin of mercy. To quote Nietzsche at length, The creditor always becomes more humane as his wealth increases. Finally, the amount of his wealth determines how much injury he can sustain without suffering from it. It is not impossible to imagine a society so conscious, so conscious conscious of its power, that it could allow itself the noblest luxury available to it, that of letting its malefactors go unpunished. What do I care about my parasites, it could say. Let them live and flourish. I am strong enough for all that. Justice, which began by saying everything can be paid off, everything must be paid off, ends by turning a blind eye and letting off those unable to pay. It ends, like every good thing on earth, by sublimating itself. The self-sublimation of justice. We know what a nice name it gives itself. Mercy. It remains, of course, the prerogative of the most powerful man. Better still, his way of being beyond the law. So Nietzsche has established the origin of conscience, of justice and mercy, and even hinted towards the invention of the idea of divine beings. But what about bad conscience? Of that feeling of guilt that arises with the experience of having done something wrong. First, Nietzsche notes that guilt rarely attends having done something wrong, but rather having been caught, or of some action failing. And this is not strictly guilt, but the sense that something 
went wrong. That is, you might do something that is considered bad a thousand times with barely a twinge of bad conscience. But once you're caught, once you're in trouble for it, a sudden flow of emotion arises. But perhaps our view of this emotion as at its heart a matter of self-loathing and guilt is not precisely correct. Maybe we're not paying close enough attention. In fact, maybe even though this feeling is painful in one way, we also kind of like this feeling. Nietzsche draws together a series of topics here. He discusses punishment at some length, arguing that punishment has never really been about stirring up guilt. It seems, he says, to do quite the opposite. It does stir up regret, but primarily at something having gone wrong. But we do suffer from guilt. So where did this arise? You might guess at this point that Nietzsche would see it arising from the love of power, because Nietzsche seems to be focused on power. And you would be right. When we live in a society in which we cannot experience the power of causing others suffering, when we live, you might say, in a society that condemns such naked shows of power, either for ostensibly moral reasons or simply for law and order reasons, or even perhaps if we're just too weak or fearful to try to exert power, then we must find an outlet for this exertion of power over others. But where does it go? Perhaps we can experience it vicariously through the Roman Colosseum or our modern versions in film and TV. But though these may help, they do not suffice. Nietzsche claims, rather, that all instincts which are not discharged outwardly turn inwards. And so, he claims, when we cannot feel the pleasure of having power over someone else, we turn that instinct inward and attack ourselves. Nietzsche describes it rather graphically. Lacking external enemies and obstacles and forced into the oppressive narrowness and conformity of custom, man impatiently ripped himself apart, persecuted himself, gnawed at himself, gave himself no peace, and abused himself. This animal who battered himself raw on the bars of his cage and who is supposed to be tamed. Man full of emptiness and torn apart with homesickness for the desert has had to create from within himself an adventure, a torture chamber, an unsafe and hazardous wilderness. This fool, this prisoner consumed with longing and despair, became the inventor of bad conscience. Now Nietzsche sounds disapproving and in a way, perhaps he is. He writes that atheism could relieve us from this bad conscience, providing us new innocence. Of course, this new innocence is not quite the idyllic paradise of John Lennon's Imagine, or Vladimir Lennon's Worker's Paradise. But neither is it merely a kind of dystopian nightmare. But if we draw from Other of Nietzsche's works, this new innocence will not arise without a serious and violent shakeup of the world. And it would be hard to argue with Nietzsche on this point, given the history of the West and the world as a whole since he wrote the genealogy. Of course, Nietzsche is also not entirely critical of the divine either, in the way that many contemporary atheists are. He claims that the gods were invented not merely for the purpose of being spectators of suffering but also grew out of a sense of honor and indebtedness to one's ancestors. That as a society grew more powerful, it gave greater greater honor and greater indebtedness to its ancestors. These ancestors became larger than life, great heroes. And if that society lasted, 
and grew powerful enough, they became gods, gods of that tribe or nation. The stories of the battles of the gods were indeed reflections into the heavens of the historical struggles of that nation. These polytheisms of the tribes and smaller nations changed, though. Nietzsche writes, The progression to universal empires is always the progress to universal deities at the same time. Despotism, with its subjugation of the independent nobility, always prepares the way for some sort of monotheism as well. You see here an idea similar to that of Ludwig Feuerbach, that the divine is a projection into the transcendent realm of the values and power dynamics of the earthly realm. Nietzsche believed that there is, or at least was, a way in which the belief in the divine could be a positive thing. Given his love of ancient Greece, you could guess that he thought their view of the divine also to be better. And indeed he does. He writes, There are nobler ways of making use of the invention of gods than man's self-crucifixion and self-abuse, ways in which Europe excelled during the last millennia. This can fortunately be deduced from any glance at the Greek gods, these reflections of noble and proud men in whom the animal in man felt deified, did not tear itself apart and did not rage against itself. And so he argues that the gods can be in a way can be a way to project the ideals of the strong. But according to Nietzsche, that is not how Christianity has functioned, or really any moralistic theistic view. In a belief in a moralistic God, the individual who has developed a bad conscience, internalizing violence against oneself, finds a way to justify this self-hatred and to give it meaning. Debt to God. A debt that could never be paid. And indeed, at its height, this debt is magnified and made impossible to pay such that the only solution is that genius move, Nietzsche says, of Christianity. God sacrificing himself to himself. And though on the surface this appears to be a source of relief for humanity's self-gnawing guilt, it in fact makes that debt unending. In God paying himself for for humanity's debt, the internalized violence of bad conscience becomes eternally justified. And so Nietzsche draws together a number of lines of thought, from the development of conscience in the sovereign individual to its corruption in the domesticated one, from our love of exerting power over others to a sense of the indebtedness to our ancestors and gives us an explanation of everything from our sense of justice, the self-loathing that lies behind the honoring of selflessness, our love-hate relationship with guilt, as well as a couple explanations as to why we believe in God. Nietzsche ends, though, with a kind of hopeful prophecy that one day there will be a redeemer. Of course, not a redeemer who pays off human sin. Rather, Nietzsche writes, This man of the future will redeem us, not just from the ideal held up till now, but also from those things which had to arise from it, from the great nausea, the will to nothingness, from nihilism, that stroke of midday and of great decision that makes the will free again, which gives earth its purpose and man his hope again. This antichrist and anti-nihilist, this conqueror of God and of nothingness, he must come one day. This brings us to one last summary point that we haven't really noted yet, but I should make clear here. Nietzsche saw God sin, morality, guilt, and all these various elements to be aspects of nihilism, of the will to become nothing, that robs earth, or we might say this life, of its meaning. 
All these things Nietzsche wrote about in his in this second essay are ways in which humanity attacks its life in the here and now. And because we experience life as pain, and the more moral we are, the more we torture ourselves, we desire nothing more than a cessation, a Sabbath, an ending of all activity. For activity itself brings pain. Thus we wish for an end to activity. And of course, that means an end to life. This Nietzsche claims is true nihilism, hoping that it all might come to an end in an eternal Sabbath, for when life is activity, then cessation is death. An eternal cessation is eternal death, and wishing that a, such a Sabbath come down upon all is a desire that all would finally die so that we might have peace. Sounds like something someone weak would wish for. Now, Nietzsche despised this kind of nihilism, and he believed that Christianity and its echoes, even in the moral deism and atheism of his fellow Europeans, contained this poison of nihilism. He also hoped, perhaps with a certain hope, that one would come to redeem us from this nihilism. of the second essay, you said that Nietzsche says, you know, we don't have any issue uh, admiring people who are strong, people who, you know, have these characteristics, but that, that there's been a, a flip to now where we have to train ourselves to like weakness. And um, it seems like on one hand, you would expect that if, if Nietzsche was right, if, if we really valued this uh, admiring of weakness that over the past 2000 years, culturally, we would start have started to um, more naturally admire the weakness and uh, not still be so hung up on our admiration of the strength in the way that, that Nietzsche frames things. What do you think's going on that, um, you know, because when, when, when I, I, I heard that from you, I kept thinking of all these examples of, you know, the strong men that we seem to put on the pedestals that, you know, the, that it's not weakness that we seem to uh, admire as a culture uh, or even in, in Christianity, we, we, we will put the, the strong men up on the pedestals um, rather than the, um, those who, who might exemplify those, those weaknesses as far as Nietzsche is concerned. What, what do you think's going on that, um, we still are beholden to the to the strong instead of the weak if Christianity is this force that Nietzsche seems to claim it is. Yeah, well, I think there's a there's a couple things going on. Um, I think there's a sense in I think what Nietzsche would say would be something like uh, we can't get away from the fact that there are things that that we had that we admire strength because that's a part of how life functions. And so there's always going to be an element of um, there's always going to be an element of admiration of the strong because it's it's a physiological it's Nietzsche is very much he believes very much that the physiological is, uh, makes up how how we respond and how we act and so on and so forth. So he doesn't he doesn't even think of the weak as people. He thinks of them as physiologically weak, but not necessarily physically weak They're But the reason they're mentally weak or emotionally weak or however you want to put this is because of their physiology. 
But nevertheless, we still have an element within us that recognizes that strength is absolutely necessary for survival and for development and so on and so forth. So I think what's going on here, and this will become a little bit more evident in the third essay where he gets very, uh, very direct on how he thinks the, the motivation for life itself is what gives rise to, to even the, the weak morality. Uh, even the slave morality, it, it gives gives rise to that in a particular sort of way. Uh, the draw toward death and nothingness is itself a function of life attempting to protect itself within us. So you can kind of look at it as Nietzsche describing how life itself is causing us to act particular ways. And so the reason why uh, I guess to put it to put it simply, the reason why strength, why we still admire strength and give honor to strength, even though often a, a sort of, if I can use this language, a stupid strength in some some respects, uh, is because that is a fundamental desire of human life that we that that there be strength. And so, uh, Christianity is dominant, or maybe I should say we should kind of avoid because it came from Christianity, or Christianity was the way that the priestly morality got a hold of us. You might say, according to Nietzsche. But we're obviously not beholden to Christianity too terribly much. And even in Nietzsche's time, there was a lot of, um, among the academics, the the hold of Christianity was sort of gone, but the morality was still there. So the, the, the weak morality was maintained. It's, Christianity was the, the vehicle by which it was injected into us. You know, as we throw off, as we as a, as a culture throw off Christianity, we still have the you know we're just getting rid of the hypodermic needle, the poison still in us. That's almost Nietzschean language, and so um, the the reason why the weak morality uh, it it has this power over us and can cause the strong to be. Um, to be to even perhaps even feel wrong for being for being that way, but it's not quite sufficient to overcome the admiration of strength because strength is admirable. It's just it's built into us, and so we still have uh, uh, the admiration of the weak. Isn't so much admiration; it's more like eh, that's almost the wrong word, but like honoring of the weak, uh, primarily by the by the uh, admiration of the virtues that support the weak. So we're talking about the admiring of compassion, the admiring of pity, uh, the belief that the the one who is weak and suffering is better than the one who is not, um, is more moral than the one who is not. Uh, we, I mean, contemporary language, you can use ideas of like privilege and so on and so forth um, as sort of a negative thing. Nevertheless, we still admire good basketball players. We admire the the and and in, in maybe a little less comfortable realm. We admire the successful, in, in a way. And so these people get really successful doing such and such, and then they get on there and they start selling you programs to come and learn their way. You know, twelve steps towards success or whatever. Or Joel Osteen gets up and says, "If you have faith, you should be rich," and so on and so forth. Um, I think we have mixed feelings about those kinds of people. <laughs> and I think, I think, I really think that's, that's kind of the idea. We love the underdog. We love more the idea of revenge. We can get to that maybe elsewhere, but we, we, we admire the successful, but there's also an element where we, 
where we're uncomfortable with our admiration of this of of that kind of strength. Maybe so. Uh, I, I guess to really get to your question, the reason why the weak morality or why Christianity hasn't been able to eradicate the admiration of the strong from us is because admiration of the strong is so fundamental to our nature that it's that you can't um you it's probably impossible to eradicate completely but we can point we can we can cast shadows on it you might say make it taste a little bit wrong okay um kind kind of building on that um you talked about how physiologically you know that's where the the strength we see there is is at least in the early in the ancient morality was what was uh, admired and what we still admire to some extent today. Um, would it be, I, I think it would be accurate to say that the priestly morality has kind of a psychological strength or um, an intellectual strength to it um, that Nietzsche kind of admires in that it's a kind of strength. And as, as modernization has happened, um, that strength has become more useful in society that it is. It, I mean, you, you look at, at Jeff Bezos and I kind of think I could, I could probably beat him up. I mean, you know, but the man has so much money. He, he could probably design something to, you know, blow up my house. Um, but right. the, the, these, you, you talked about the sovereign individual and it seems like for Nietzsche, the sovereign individual is kind of a wedding of the physiological strength and that intellectual or psychological strength. Um, it's almost like Nietzsche's saying, we can't go back to the ancient. And so we have to kind of take what we've learned from the strength, from this weird kind of strength the priestly class shows and find a way to merge the two together to get the sovereign individual, which is, which is going to be the Nietzschean ideal for, for a human. Am, am I, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think so. And I, I want, I want to be, I want to make one clarification before I, before I, before I respond. Um, and that is when I say physiological, I don't necessarily mean physical strength. So physiological, he just believes that like, he believes a lot of philosophy, different kinds of philosophy and nihilism or whatever, just, just arises out of people feeling miserable. And that misery could be anything from bad digestion to just some sort of, he talks about a kind of physiological block or inhibition that keeps you from be, being bold and being strong and enjoying vigor, whether that's intellectual or otherwise. But the thing is, it's clear that that um, it's clear from uh, the first essay and the second essay that that with the advent of the weak morality, we developed cl a kind of cleverness. And he talks about this. He says he says without without the revolution in in morality. Uh, we wouldn't have, uh, w with that man became interesting, interesting in a deep, rich sort of way. In fact, Nietzsche's philosophy couldn't develop except in light of this because he's so, he's such a psycho, he, he calls himself a psychologist. Now this is before psychology was really a, I mean, at that point it was starting to separate. Uh, and so when he says psychologist, he means it in a, in a very, in the very meaning of the term. Right where he's trying to dig into the human psyche, uh, and I, arguably that couldn't even develop with the kind of self-reflection, self-consciousness, uh, kind of intellectual cleverness that comes with comes comes with the slave morality. And so, 
Uh, yeah, there is there is a wedding here and sovereign individual. And it's, it's hard to kind of figure out how history may have worked out. I think if we start to dig in here, things start to get a little complicated. But uh, the sovereign individual only arises uh, when a kind of power to control one's uh, when the power to control one's desires and give them shape is brought into being. And so this couldn't have existed in early humanity. Um, we were just running on instinct and our desires were perhaps a kind of chaos. But with with the constraints that come with morality, uh, or really even pre-morality, just cultural constraints that are put in place to keep order so that you know, the one in charge can continue to have power and we can, you know, survive and beat the other tribes or whatever. Those kind of constraints taught us the ability to kind of separate out from ourselves, look at our desires and give them shape. So the sovereign individual is the one who understands, uh, understands him or herself and is able to, uh, able, well, able to make promises. That is to will over time, will over large gaps of time. The problem with the weak uh, the the weak is the sovereign individual can't come from the weak, but but is influenced by the fact that weak morality had power because the weak, by their very nature, don't really have control over their desires, not not entirely. In fact, we'll find in, in the third essay, uh, one of the primary things that the weak do is they try to stir up passion and random passion. Just what matters is is excess of feeling. So there's a lot of pursuit of excess of feeling. Um, and it doesn't matter where it's directed. It just needs to be, you know, it's, it, it can be directed randomly. It's not necessarily directed for good ends. And so, uh, uh, so the sovereign individual can't be that kind of person, but yes, the sovereign individual does come, I think in part morality, or at least morality, the, 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 the power of weak morality causes the sovereign individual to be a different kind of person. So previously the sovereign individual might be just someone who is a kind of warlord, uh, but not just some random guy who runs around beating people up, but a person who has control over himself. But his but his his desires are very sort of simple. There's not there's not cleverness involved. But the new sovereign individual Nietzsche would hold would probably be some something more like an artist. This this is someone who who so the old sovereign individual might be a Genghis Khan or a Genghis Khan or however you pronounce his name. A new sovereign individual. Uh, even Napoleon, he considers sort of like one of the old strong who kind of injected himself into modern life and for a short bit. Um, but the new kind of strong is something, again, one of the people that Nietzsche admired and saw as sort of an, one of these kind of ubermensch. So we have, you know, maybe we should bring that word up. The sovereign individual is that kind of person was, was Goethe. So Goethe um, was, was not running around defeating people. He was, you know, an artist, uh, broadly speaking. So I don't know if that's helpful. I one last question about the sovereign individual because there's so much more content that we we want to get through here. Um, j just as a point of clarification, even though we kind of all want to should want to be sovereign individuals, it's not something that everyone can attain. Like we, we can't we can't have a society of sovereign individuals. That that's. That is an impossibility on Nietzsche's account, even though he's saying we all should kind of strive for that. I, am I right? In yeah, that? yeah. I mean, and it's not it's not an impossibility because it's it's a impossibility that everyone be sovereign. 
because you can't have two sovereign people living side by side. It's that Nietzsche believes you can almost call it a kind of predestination. We are physiologically determined to be particular kinds of individuals. And uh, it's just not possible. Now, I mean, this is a point where we could perhaps start fighting with Nietzsche a little bit, but he believes we're basically determined by our physiological characteristics. So there are the strong and they were born strong. Uh, uh, and there are the weak and they were born weak and they're going to be weak. And there aren't very many sovereign individuals. And by the way, the fact that there aren't very many sovereign individuals is pretty obvious if we look around us. I mean, how many people really keep their word? How many people, when they say they're going to do something, do it? How many people don't sit there and make excuses uh, over and over again? You know, we 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 consistently lie to one another. And I, when I say lie, or we don't, we consistently don't keep our word, right? Where we'll be like, yeah, let's get together sometime. We should do that. We don't mean that. You know, the second we walk away, I mean, we might want to at that moment, but the second we walk away, we sort of, this is an example I use all the time with my students. The second you walk away, you're like, I'm not going to. I'm never going to call that person. I'm not going to get together with them. Um, because, but even in that moment when you said it, you actually believed it, that, that you kind of wanted to get together. But then you, as soon as, as soon as you turn away, you don't want to anymore. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a weak individual who doesn't understand who they are. A sovereign individual would be like, the person said, hey, we should get together sometime. They would say, yeah, probably, uh, I'm not going to. You know, and that kind of person can be, intimidating, but there's also something where you, you know, that when they say they're going to do something, they mean it. Um, and so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So I, you know, we, we've, we're, we're going to be doing like a, a wrap up podcast or two or three or four on, on this, uh, when we get to the end. So I don't want to belabor this too long. Cause I think we're going to, this, this deserves much more conversation than we can give it right now. But this whole idea of suffering and the enjoyment of other people's suffering being kind of at at the core of um, of punishment and, and even at the core of a lot of the way we go about interacting with each other. It's, it's um, are 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 what are you saying that or is Nietzsche saying that we're really all kind of sick people who just get enjoyment out of seeing others suffer. And, um, at the end of the day, it's, it's the, the retribution that we get from punishment isn't, um, is more about making ourselves feel happy at seeing other people suffer than it is about, um, teaching the other person a lesson. So the, the punishment's more for ourselves than for the person who, who was harmed or who did the harming. And, um, that when we, we talk about suffering, it's, it's, it's a good because people enjoy it. It's almost a utilitarian kind of feel to it. Yeah. I mean, we enjoy it because it gives us a sense of power. The justifications that we make are post hoc justifications. So they're like, you know, uh, we enjoy it. And then we're like, well, we're not supposed to enjoy that because that's what our weak morality teaches us. So we're doing this for their good, or we're doing this for the good of society, or we're doing this for whatever kind of thing we happen to make up. And he's just like, when it comes down to it, we love the feeling of power over people. And I, I really would encourage, if you, if you are 
if you are quite taken aback by this and you're like, there's no way, I don't think like that. I, I really encourage you to examine yourself and to see if what he's saying might be true. We love, um, uh, you know, we love the, the, the revenge story. Well, why do we love the revenge story? Uh, why do we want to have seen people suffer so that someone commits revenge? Like, in fact, why do we even want revenge? What's the benefit of it? What does it accomplish? Well, it shows, teaches them. It doesn't teach them anything, especially if you kill them. It doesn't teach them anything. They're just dead. <laughs> well, it protects society. Yeah, but you don't want this done so that it will protect society. There's a pleasure in there and it has nothing to do with protecting other people. It's the feeling of, mm, yeah, get them. Oh, I love the feeling of just seeing that. And so what what is happening in a lot of these situations at least this is what Nietzsche says. And I, I, he's at least, I think he's at least partly right, but we'll get to that, you know, in one of the later episodes is that we want to experience the feeling of having power over someone. And by the way, the clearest mark that you're having power over someone is that you can make them hurt, make them experience something they don't want to experience. That's the clearest mark that you have power. Because if you make them experience that they, something they want to experience, that's, doesn't, that's not a clear evidence of power. I mean, they would have done it anyway. Uh, in fact, if you think about the nature of causation itself, that's the clearest mark that there's ca- causation going on is that uh, some sort of object or item acts differently than it otherwise would have. Uh, I think Nietzsche sees a little bit of a connection there too, but I'm, I'm going to leave that. Um, and I think if we really look at ourselves, we recognize uh, we recognize that that there's a pleasure in causing someone to experience something, but we're so uncomfortable with ourselves now regarding this sort of thing that we're always trying to think of. We, we have come up with a whole series of post hoc justifications for causing others pain. But the other thing is too, uh, another example that, that may help clarify this too, is that you realize that, and one of the things it talks about is we don't, punishment was always just like, it wasn't focused. It wasn't originally focused on the individual. It's just focused on, I need to cause a significant amount of pain. So it wouldn't be be just the individual that was punished. It'd be like the whole village or whatever. It's just the pain came from that direction, hurt everything over there. Uh, cause I want to feel that power. Um, there might even be a, a, an attempt to reassert power on that, which asserted power over you. And so, uh, and you think about this, when you get angry, when something bad happens, you're, you're mean to everybody. Like you bump your head on a cabinet and, and you yell at your kid or you treat your wife like garbage or your husband like, or what, or a friend like garbage and, or you get a bad grade. And so you treat everybody like garbage. Well, why are you doing that? It, it's not, it's not for revenge and there's no justification for it. Well, the reason is, is you're trying to get some sort of pleasure to pay off according to Nietzsche that the pleasure of power and hurting other people to pay off the fact that you suffered. And so it sort of, it makes more sense of how we respond to situations in our anger, right? We just start lashing out at everybody. And so I think Nietzsche's got a point. Uh, whether he's or, completely right is another question, but. And, and I, I think this, this resonates with, um, with a lot of us, because if you look at those we, uh, how we feel about those we disagree with, we would be very, uh, we'd be more likely to quickly say that this describes them perfectly. Now, I'm really concerned about blah, 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 blah. But 
you know, my anger is righteous, but everyone else's, it's, it's just, it's just one to make, you know, get pleasure from making people, hurt, you know, yeah. and the fact that we can see that in others, but not see it in ourselves should at least give us pause. I, like I said, we're going to come back and talk and, and get into more of a criticism of Nietzsche uh, after we get through the, through getting clear about what Nietzsche says. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me, but, make, let me make one more comment about that, about that very topic. The thing that we generally we generally think is that people either have good motives for their desire for morality or whatever, or they have bad motives. We see good motives in ourselves and and we see bad motives in them. Nietzsche's saying, no, they're all the same. Uh, the The morality that you've come up with is merely another way of describing those bad motives, but it's 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 got a sugary coating. And so the reason you see it in yourself is because you want to justify your desires. But in fact, those people have just as many moral, their motives are just as moral and as horrifying as yours because it's all one and the same. You see what I'm saying? That's why we see it and see the bad in everybody else and see the good in ourselves because of the same thing. And there's a part of us that recognizes that they are the same thing. Now, I mean, that sounds really, really harsh, really, really harsh. And that's, that's part of Nietzsche's point is like, y'all aren't really paying attention to yourselves, right? That's how we started off. And, 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 you know, you keep talking about power, like for Nietzsche, everything really can be distilled down to power and including this last thing I, I want to bring up before we wrap up. And that's this idea of guilt or bad conscience. Like you are, you only feel guilt if there's someone more powerful than you that can catch you and make you uh, suffer for what you did. If, if no one can touch you, if you have the ability to act without consequence or without experiencing bad consequences, you have no reason to feel guilt, according to Nietzsche. Um, this this is uh, tricky for us because, um, and I think this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is where Nietzsche kind of points to uh, the priestly morality uh, in inventing God so that there's always someone more powerful than you to, that, you know, regardless how much power you have here, there's someone who can make you uh, hurt for the bad you do. Um, is that really what guilt is? Is guilt, you know, just about, you know, not having the power to, uh, escape the negative consequences for our actions? Or, um, is there something more going on? I, I know what Nietzsche, I know Nietzsche is saying this, but, um, you know, it, it I, I think we all want to say there's more going on because we don't want to just admit that it's about, we can't get away with what we want to get away with. Um, but yeah, it does seem to resonate with our experience that um, we're more apt to feel at least more guilt if we get caught doing something than uh, if we just do it and reflect on the fact that we did it and no one ever knows we did it except we did, except us. Yeah, I, I think that, well, I think there's a, there's a, actually a couple different things. The thing about the second essay is that there, there's so many different elements that are all feeding together into, into different things. What Nietzsche's talking about in part is that uh, it's just a simple empirical observation. People generally don't feel guilt until they get caught. The trick for a good priestly morality person is to feel like you're always getting caught. So God is helpful in that regard. Always feel like you're getting caught because he said the original feeling of guilt isn't. And if you think about it, when we punish people, the while well, the punishment is supposed to make them feel guilty, it doesn't make people feel guilty. It makes people feel like, ah, something went wrong here. I got caught. So how do we transfer that into guilt and how do we get the flavor of guilt? 
right? Because the, the flavor of guilt is slightly different than regret for having failed, even though they're very, those are a lot more similar than they might, than you might think. Um, so what is the, what is the particular flavor of guilt? There's the other element that, that feeds into guilt as well. And that is that we love to experience power over other people. What happens when we live in a society or in a morality that doesn't allow us to exert power over people in a direct way? Well, we internalize it. And Nietzsche's talking about this, this sublimation of power. So what do I do? Well, I torture myself. And so it's both painful and pleasurable. And I think, think about your experience. When you, when you wallow in your guilt, is it not both painful and pleasurable? Well, why would it be pleasurable to wallow in guilt? except that you're acting as both tortured and torturer. And the tortured is feeling pain and the torturer is loving the power. And think about it. When I feel guilty, I'm like, oh, you're, you stu you suck. You're such an idiot. You're, you know, da, da, da. And I, and there's like an arrogance that's rising above. Uh, and by the way, talking about guilt in this way, this is just kind of a preview of where we might go, but talking about uh, guilt in this way, Think about what happens when someone comes and says, I've taken away your sin. You have no right to feel guilty anymore. Why would Jesus want to take away our guilt? And this is, by the way, Jesus taking away our guilt is a direct attack on what Nietzsche is trying, Nietzsche is trying to do here, sort of. Uh, Nietzsche tries to, tries to deal with it, but I think he f fails there. I don't want to attack Nietzsche yet. We're trying to bolster him up. But there's a situation here where he sort of fails to get really what Christianity is doing. Uh, but so guilt, it, it tears the person into two pieces, a torturer and a tortured, a righteous and a sinner. Uh, and by the way, n neither one of those needs forgiveness because the righteous doesn't need forgiveness and the sinner doesn't deserve forgiveness. Uh, what happens when someone f offers you forgiveness? You can't torture yourself with guilt anymore. You're not allowed to. It's a lie. But that's anyway, that's a preview. But uh <laughs> But I think there's, again, there's two things feeding into this. One is that, one is that we don't, generally don't feel guilty until we get caught. So the goal is to get an, omni, an omniscient being to always be catching us. Um, and then the other, uh, uh, the other element is the internalization of the instinct to exert power over others. Okay. Now, I, if you've listened to us for any length of time, you, you might have some questions about, uh, it seems like Nietzsche is not dealing with anything related to virtue ethics in his criticism. And it's worth noting historically at this point, virtue ethics had kind of fallen off the radar um, that cotton mill were, were, you know, the, the deontology, you do the right thing because it's the right thing. And the utilitarianism of mill, utilitarianism of mill there, it's all about creating pleasure. Those were the two dominant ethical theories of the day. And so he, you know, you can kind of see how those might fit into Nietzsche, what Nietzsche is criticizing. Um, but is he dealing with virtue ethics? No, because that's not on the radar. It's it's it, it was considered a thing of the past at that point. Um, because I'm, you, if you've been thinking about virtue ethics, you might be like, hold on, like it seems like there's all these kind of responses we could give to Nietzsche about this, and you're right, but that's not what Nietzsche has in mind. Yeah, so. I mean, our, there's there is a line of thinking with Nietzsche that that holds him as being a virtue ethicist, uh, but of a Homeric virtues. But we'll have to get to that in the in the response because what he's responding to is everything that's not virtue ethics. Right, right. So, so 
there's more we could say, but we're getting long, and we've got another essay to deal with in the next episode, and then we're going to do at least one episode offering some criticism and some application. Uh, it might turn into two or three, or you you know us, it might turn into yeah, six. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we appreciate you guys. Uh, enjoying or at least listening to our podcast and um, feel free to reach out Uh, we'd love to get feedback and uh, to to cover some things that you guys are especially interested in Uh, so, so until next time this is joel this is travis thanks for listening